0: Welcome to Power to the Patients, a LinkedIn Live and podcast series hosted by Power, where clinical research leaders across sponsors, sites, CROs, and patient advocacy groups discuss patient centricity in clinical trials. We explore the bottlenecks in today's system, challenge the status quo, and talk about future opportunities for innovation. Let's dive in. Today, we're joined by uh, Brian Wiley, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with us, talk about patient centricity. I know it's a topic that's dear to your heart. Uh, but before we, we jump into that specifically, I'd love to uh, maybe just for the audience, uh, give an overview about your background and how you got to, to where you are today.
1: Thanks, Brandon. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be here to talk about page, patient centricity. I think it's something as I've, uh, I've been in medical device for over 20 years, clinical research. I've uh, kind of been in a lot of cardiovascular, electrophysiology, heart failure, renal denervation. But I think as I've run trials and had teams that we've been running trials, it's hard. And I think um, you know, enrollment can be harder than you think, uh, finding the right sites, et cetera. But I think uh, one of the things is finding patients. And patient centricity is kind of that focus on the patient and throughout the life cycle of the trial and how can we make a trial easier to understand for that patient? How can we get that more access to more uh, pa- a diverse patient population? And then, um, you know, how can we make it a little bit less cumbersome to be in research? Because there's so many novel therapies. And I think the reason I got into uh, clinical research is to help patients. Um, I think that's a lot of our why. We all know uh, somebody that's been in a clinical trial. Sure. I like that there's this new approach to really focusing on the patient. And I think that's going to help us create better trials. And that's kind of my background and my passion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, let's, let's go there. Let's talk about how you think it's going to impact the way that we do trials and how, how is it going to help us uh, create better trials?
1: I, I think really considering patients throughout the, as I said, throughout the life cycle of the clinical study and how do they fit in. I think, you know, sponsors are, uh, we're, we're doing a good job of trying to bring a little bit more patient focus in, but I think in the, in the past and still we think of patients as a subject and, you know, as a number and equals, and we, we have a lot of uh, pressure on us to execute trials and maybe sometimes not deviate too far from what others have done in the past. So there's a lot of risk. We want to get approvals. We want to get these good, innovative technologies out there. But if we take a step back and really think about the way the patient interacts and all the different steps, I think we can can do a better job. I think like one of the things I think about is education. How do we get scientific data to a patient in a way that they could understand it that they understand the risk going in. I mean, we have our informed consent process, but it's usually a lengthy document. It's almost so legal that a patient would tune out. But, you know, when we've been having discussions in the past, I think the Power Platform is really nice that you're taking clinicaltrials.gov info, that's hard to navigate, and a patient isn't really used to it. As a sponsor, as researchers, we're on it every day, so we understand it. But taking that information and kind of bringing it over to the patient and then trying to condense it down in a, User-friendly way, and so that's I think that's a patient-centric approach that would really helps. But I would, when I'm, you know, a recent trial I was doing was a heart failure trial, and I know that the device has been implanted in say thousands of people before. I know it's been in people for twenty years. It's approved in the FDA for another indicate by the FDA and European regulators for another indication, and the data is very compelling to go into the, the area that the study was researching. But how do you get the patients to understand that this is a really innovative therapy for their condition and it has a lot of safety data. So um, mm. I think you've been trying to address that with patients too. How do you get that safety data, risk data, how do you categorize it so a patient can digest it? And importantly, the patient's family, the loved ones are awesome, awesome sorry, often.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think this this topic of education and understanding, you know, the potential safety implications, especially in trials, studying devices or drugs that are better understood, is so important. How do you do it today? So, so you're you're just on this journey. Like how like how did you approach it today? How are others doing it today? Approaching getting education out there. Yeah, and like meeting patients where they are with the information that, that's relevant.
1: It's a great question. I think we're still using some of the standard methods, um you know, patient recruitment materials. we. We've, Most sponsors will create a brochure. They're good. They touch on this uh, a little bit on the surface. Uh, You have to say that there may not be benefit, that there are risks. So they will have the risks and benefits in in front of them. Uh, It's very common. I've done this a lot, creating a website for um, patients to be able to go to. I think the more information you have access, the patients and their loved ones have access today because people do Google so much, the more they are able to get out there and find information, the better. But i say, I think we could do better. And it's maybe finding better platforms to reach patients. Um, Is it always going to be a a brochure or is it going to be a website? Or, you know, I have in the past used Facebook to create Facebook tapes for the clinical trial or we've used Twitter. Twitter sometimes maybe is more investigator or research team focused. But I think new platforms are definitely going to be a key. And then, you know, new technology that maybe can condense this data a little easier and help patients get to it and understand it. I think as a clinical researcher, and and I know most of my colleagues in their career, we get a lot of people contacting you and say, my loved one has this condition. We know of any clinical trials. They don't know where to start. I think we could do better there.
0: Sure, yeah. So we're we're creating one of these platforms, right? What what are the top three things you would like to see on our website to support this patient education material that is so critical?
1: Like on your website, what I think would be great is a patient has a very specific condition, like atrial fibrillation or persistent atrial fibrillation, and they can go on your website, search that, and it comes up with a number of trials. Then when you click into them, it can tell you, you know, really quickly being able to summarize the eligibility in mm-hmm. an easy to understand way. And then I think, how do you get, for instance, the top trial I was just referencing earlier in heart failure, if there's 16 trials that have come before it, if there's 150 PubMed papers and a lot of safety data, how do you get that? And how? How could you uh, help the patient condense that down into almost a score or a uh, you know something digestible that they could really understand the safety of the device or you know the risks and
0: the risks in the weighing the benefits as well? Yeah, I love that idea. So you're going to love our this new feature that we've just developed. We're calling it simplified eligibility, and it's essentially what you've just described, which is on each stu- like study page being able to really simplify the eligibility criteria away from kind of the clinical stuff towards more um, patient-friendly terminology. So at a glance, anybody can kind of read through and understand, could I be a fit for this study? Um, But I want to talk about this idea of a score, because the idea of creating a score has been on our minds for quite some time. For all intents and purposes, let's use the the Zestimate example from Zillow, right? It's a, you know, it's a quantifiable score, but you know, you know how much the dollar value of a house is. And it's, it's not so objectionable. How would you think about like a a safety score? Like what what dimension would that even be on?
1: I think it would be really interesting, especially, you know, maybe I'm getting ahead of my thinking, but I think with, you know, AI, you can digest all of the data and really get an understanding for what's out there and help put it into context, risk, benefit. And then when you're able to kind of click in and drill down to easy digestible metrics of why this is safe. And I think going back to your Zillow or Zestimate, there's a lot of measures in uh, real estate that we know like price per square foot or uh the scores of a school district, et cetera, that make your house worth a certain amount if you could, if we could find those metrics for clinical studies and make people feel comfortable
0: with it, I think it could be a, a great benefit interesting and is this is this score like out of a hundred in your mind like I'm trying to get the sense of like is this like a ninety nine out of a hundred kind of score like like what what is this
1: I think we looked in a case patient centric way maybe patient might uh, respond a little bit better to one out of 10 or, you know, like, you know, we know seven and above is very safe. Six is experimental therapy that there's no other no nothing else out there for you. Maybe that's a a
0: number. Yeah. Interesting. You can almost see like a walk score kind of solution here. Um, Have you seen those like walk scores on like realtor.com or maybe some of those other rental platforms where they are they kind of grade apartment units with like, oh, this is in a 95 out of 100 walking neighborhood? Yeah. Yeah, and then you, you click in and maybe it actually unfurls six dimensions of safety. And, yep. and there's an like, objective way that you kind of score points against that.
1: Yeah, and I think to back up the scoring, really having the, the categorized metrics when you click into it so that it stays relevant, stays scientific and it's not, it's, it doesn't become marketing, but yet it condenses it down I think you're, you're onto something because we do like our 4.5 out of 5s. You know, I go to a restaurant, so and I want to see a score of 4 or, 4 or
0: 5. Yeah. That's a lot of, you know, patient-centricity from uh, a patient education perspective. I know one of the things that you think a lot about is the site experience. Can you talk a little bit more about patient-centricity from the perspective of sites?
1: You know, from the perspective of the sites, you know, sites also have the enrollment pressure that you know the sponsor does as well. So one for the site, getting the word out to patients and having them maybe come to them is would be very helpful for the sites, but and for the patient. I think kind of helping sites manage their resources a little bit with uh, with the publication, you know, dashboards that can organize the patients that have that have come into the pipeline and where they are in the process, I think would very much help research and and patients. I think technology is again always something that is, is going to start continuing to help patients, researchers, and sponsors. For instance, just simply automated follow-up visits, text messages, or different tools that really like ping patients. I think from a site perspective, we could help the sites by designing our follow-up visits with patient needs in mind. For instance, some a lot of research is going for decentralized visits where one, one method you could bring a clinician out to do follow-up visits in the patient's home, that could save a lot of that, you know, loss to attrition, patients maybe not being able to make follow-up visits and moving away. I think it, it, it benefits the patient in a way that, we you now have lo- less burden. Uh, sponsors do this really well, and I think it helps the research team, but uh, providing travel reimbursement. Sure. I think going a step further and maybe thinking about within the lines of an IRB approval, but. Thinking about, can we offer ride shares? Can we offer transportation? Some of our patient populations can be in their you know, late 70s, early 80s, very sick. And it, uh, you know to think about them getting to uh, follow a visit for the next year, year and a half can be tough. So, sure. you know, to continuing to think about it every step of the way, where um, there might be roadblocks and where patients might suffer. And, in, and it also starts weighing on the sites and sponsoring.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's been a lot of talk about. It these decentralized or hybrid clinical ops models. There's also been a lot of talk about increasing site burden. And when I think of those two things together, anything that feels like it requires new processes uh, to be adopted across a lot of sites, or now we have to get clinician, clinicians out of the site and into the home, all feels like increasing complexity from a site perspective. How do these things come together in your mind? or How, how, do, we, how do we marry these two, these two themes?
1: It's a really good point. I mean, every time you introduce something new, there is a different different logistical concern. And I think on this topic, I mean, as a sponsor, we need to be sitting down early as we're designing the study and really working with, I think, working with the research team and patients, maybe not at the same time, but separately, but having them kind of help weigh in on some of the the places where we've got roadblocks. For instance, if you kind of, if you met, while you're doing your trial design with patient advocates or patient advocate groups, they might say, heart failure patients are too sick to be going every, and I'm just making this up, going every six months to a follow-up, that, that, uh, you might want to consider this, or I know that they're not mobile, et cetera. I mean, and then if you took, if you went and talked, started talking to research, research coordinators and research teams and investigators that are designing trials, I think they could maybe say, oh, you're going to put this new process in and it's not going to fit with our hospital SOP or, you know. Something that could, could show roadblocks. So I think um, kind of the very high level answer to your question is if we involve some of that thinking, some of that planning and design process. I think we can start getting a place that has a more streamlined partnership between everybody. That could help uh, be a lot more efficient
0: if you're on, on mute. Gotcha. Um, thanks for that. Let's talk a little bit more about like, implementing this stuff. So what does it take to actually get all this stuff off the ground?
1: It's a, a good operations team. <laughs> to get all the soccer ground. Um, I think, it, you know, as you said, these are new concepts, so I think it takes definitely a, a team with no mind and a little bit of time, pre- pre-planning to understand that some of this, if we implement these things correctly, do it well, one, some of the platforms might cost more money up front, but if it, if it increases enrollment, increases patient kind of happiness during the trial. And the research teams have less burden on them. I think the trial runs faster. We know that uh you know trials for a sponsor can be very costly for a month. You shave two, three months off of the study. It's a significant amount of money. So I think really starting in the front forefront and planning this out is important. There's a lot of you know, there's a lot of great platforms like yourself that can um, help bring patients to the, the research teams, but you know, making sure that if can implement that it can be implemented up behind your firewall. The, Business agreement set up in advance. I think all that pre-planning can be very helpful. And then I think what you get at the end is you get maybe more patients understanding what the study is, more patients willing to be in the study, hopefully less attrition, less workload on your research sites. Maybe you know some of these platforms to organize the patients, kind of show you where they are.
0: You mentioned you know save two months, incredible impact, uh, not just for the trial but for the program for the asset.
1: As well as the patient, because
0: patients will yeah. then uh, to
1: hopefully get an approval quicker or be able to get into the study.
0: Absolutely. What, what are the things that you have seen drive that amount of impact the most regularly? What, what actually gets people to, to these two months, three months of time savings? Everybody talks about getting there, but what have you seen to really work? Well, it works to getting people to, have, getting people to get, actually
1: realize that two or three month impact or talk about it in plan.
0: To, to realize it, to realize,
1: I think you know, as a sponsor, we're always you know, I think I read a stat recently 80% of trials enroll slower than you know, sponsors. So, we're always thinking of ways to uh, try to help our site, we can help ourselves roll faster. So, uh, we're willing to spend money to realize that hey, sometimes you know, two three months could be two three million in some sense. I think little things have helped, but I, I don't know if anybody's really, or we've really found exactly the right solution to get you know huge months worth of savings. But definitely, um, I think some of the things that I've done is really partnering with your sites, having great customer service as a sponsor, creating efficiency. If you talked about how you're putting some new systems in the efficient for this challenge, but really making sure CRFs are efficient, database efficient, instructions are efficient, um, we thought about our follow-up visits. We make amendments to the protocol when we find that something maybe is too cumbersome and inclusion/exclusion criteria. All of those things together are just really working. Always keep, keeping an eye and a pulse on the study and that seeing how it's going. All of those factors together and then start realizing months of, of savings. But I think on the topic of the patient-centricity and new platforms, I think there's a lot there for us to do even more you know, and then maybe have more more consistently healthy. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Maybe a spicy question, but what do you think people are getting wrong?
1: That's a good, a good question. I don't know if we're, um, I, don't, I don't know if
0: uh, maybe getting it wrong is the
1: right way, but maybe people are really digging in and doing things As I said earlier, it's pretty risky as a sponsor. Say, going back to an example, when I was in an a ablation study, four or five studies have come before you they have been run a certain way. The FDA has guidance documents on how to measure AFib and detect things, and you don't, sometimes sponsors have a hard time going outside of that box. We want, they want approval, they don't want to take the risk of, you know, one instance would be certain monitors for arrhythmias. They're cumbersome or they're not the best technology, there's much better technology like 24-hour patches or even, you know, possibly wearables or implantable link device, but... That would actually get you more information than others have collected. It could skew the data if it's, it could be better, but it could be worse. So I think sometimes implementing things that could help the study, help the science, help the patient, unfortunately aren't done because they're risking to deviate outside of the. So I think that would be one thing possibly are getting wrong and in, in, in inhibiting, maybe putting in some of these new new techniques that can be more helpful to the patient, research, and do
0: yeah, absolutely. Is this different in med device versus drug trials? Like, how do you how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, well, most of my career's been med device, so I really am focused there. I don't necessarily think it's different. I think med, I think pharmaceutical has, uh, you know, they're, they're usually much larger studies, statistically driven. I think in some ways, patients are really more accepting of a pharmaceutical, taking a pill, and sometimes getting a medical intervention
0: or even surgery. Interesting.
1: I don't think it's that much different. I think we all have our ways we think, the way we do things. For, for sticking to it, Things evolve, but it takes a bit of
0: time. I'm really interested in this idea that patients might have more concern around a med device, especially if it's implantable, right? How do you bridge the kind of patient education challenge there? Like that, that's a, It sounds like the hurdle might be even bigger in patient education. There, how, how, how do you think about that?
1: As I think about this, I think one of the keys to enrolling, one of the keys to running a good study is patient education.
0: As I was saying,
1: you know, an implantable device or an ablation procedure or you know, any kind of interventional intervention procedure runs a little bit of risk, but we have so much data out there showing how low and some of the of this is, how, how routine this has been. Um, we try to get that information out, but that goes back to what we were speaking to earlier. How do we get it in a way that it's really understandable Sometimes it's, you know, how do we package it in a way that's understandable to patients and their loved ones, but also the research teams and physicians. Um, I think that, you know, medicine, we're taught to be very skeptical and believe evidence, and that's, that's smart. But um, I think there's a lot of things that this safety data could be supporting of this and supporting of that, and therefore this expanded education should hold a lot of the safety that the past communication the patient had well. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I think that is the challenge. How do we get this information to patients in
0: our to understand that? Yeah. Are there are there like ways that you frame things uh, that you have found to be more comprehensible for, for patients?
1: Yeah, I think uh, you know, definitely I think the, the stats that the health literacy of the average American is pretty low. So how do you uh, you know, we write our ICF in I think fifth to eighth grade language, try to really keep lay, lay terms within our brochures and our our, uh, our web- patient websites, but I think there's still an opportunity maybe to like, dig in and find out, you know, what, what patients respond to and what information do they need? And it's kind of gone back to, you know, started by about patient centricity, but I think bringing the patients in and having them kind of give input into recruitment as you're building it, uh, input into ICF language, how, to, how do they read it, how do they, how do they understand it? So bringing that in mean, early in the process could help sponsor reach target audience better. And then new technology platforms, are we, are, we, are we reaching patients in the right way?
0: So I want to talk a little bit about the past and I want to talk a little bit about the future. So yeah. traditional patient recruitment, what does that mean to you?
1: I think traditional patient recruitment is, uh, you know, you create your recruitment material and brochures out to the site. You have a field team that tries to help educate the research team, but it's really just scrolling through EMRs and clinic and patient records, and having a, a part of inclusion criteria down. And it, it's kind of a process that relies heavily on the research team's shoulders and how much resources the research team has. Right. And kind of the, the historical way it's been done, and it works really well in some cases, and in some indications, in some files, and some trials, and some it can be, can be challenging to find patients, especially if these aren't patients being seen on a daily basis or something, a rare condition that. How do we how do you get to the, the How
0: do you find them? Yeah, absolutely. What about modern patient I mean, recruitment? What does that mean to you?
1: Modern patient recruitment, I think it's it's within like my first example. I you know really great success was working on a renal innovation project being resistant hypertension patients. How do you find patients that are resistant to hypertension meds? They're really living deep within part of the hypertension clinics. So we use Facebook and you can created a Facebook page, created awareness, gave informational uh, information there, could search demographics and keywords, we started being able to reach more, more patients and, and bring them into the funnel, had a call center that uh, would do some screening questions and, and then get the patients to the site. So that's it's not as modern as it used to sound, but it's something that was working. But I think just uh, platforms, how do you get to some of these select patient populations? How do you search using the social tools we have? Drafts, et cetera. So that's one of the modern ways. I think um, you know, even platforms like Power that can go and condense information quickly, we can search trials. So patients that didn't know how to find a clinical trial that might be helpful for a certain patients can go there and then connect with sites or um, find out more information about it. Another kind of a modern approach.
0: I'm so curious about this Facebook group that you created or this Facebook page. What, what was it? A Facebook page? Was it a Facebook group? Was there a difference?
1: It's you know, named as the study title. Really easy to start out. Consultants will, will come out and tell you how, how they can do it for you. But I, I would almost encourage everybody, if they're interested in starting a page, it's really, you know, just start it, put up a banner picture, picture, put some key information, and then start searching demographics around the, you know, say, 50 miles from every hospital that you get in all of it. So, but yeah, it was it was Facebook page, okay, but it's almost very simple to set up.
0: And you just, you just what, you, you set it up, and then you started searching, you just started inviting people to, to, the, to the page, to like the page, to follow the page?
1: When I started, I kicked it off by inviting my contacts hmm. I think these pages being relevant on this tweet on by the number of people on it. So I, I see sure. my contacts, and then it, I think since then, it's grown to thousands Actually, there, there was one arm of this specific trial. really uh, they did a preview Facebook page finding more of these patients just because they were a select group did not exist within the day to day practice. Now I wouldn't say maybe didn't exist, but what characterized for.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Now, I know one thing that IRBs tend to get concerned about is when there's too much commentary happening amongst patients or whatnot that is you know, outside of the like, approved communications. I imagine that that kind of stuff happens on Facebook pages all the time. How did you think about that when you were running this page? This was uh, this was I think 2016, but it's still sort of a, still sort of a little bit of a
1: gray area. But we did use all IRB approved material on our website. Right. Um, subsequently, at another uh, company at another cloud, we did we did submit Facebook page content. Too. Yeah. We did sure, a yeah. submission, and we did have to. So using our IRB, yeah. IRB approved language. However, I think one of the things you're touching on is you do have the risk of a you know, troll coming on and making some comments or somebody making some negative comments or or uh, you wouldn't want to stifle real talk. But I think one thing we did on the first page is really kind of limit the amount of comments on posts people comment on. Some of it was just advertising, um, getting the word out, getting it yeah. out.
0: Yeah. You know, the, the thing I love about this, this play of yours was that you went to where the patients already ro- were. These folks were already on Facebook. They didn't have to work that hard to find your page after you'd already made it on Facebook. And you contrast that, I think, with like the strategy of creating microsites. And there's nobody out there that's looking for the, the microsite, right? Like, there aren't pay, uh, people just passively looking for, for your microsite. So be, being on Facebook where there's a network of patients that did made a lot of sense. Yeah, and the key was the demographics, people who search hypertension. Hmm. Or
1: certain drugs, they would be, this would be pushed onto their feeds. And I know in some ways we don't like it. But we really a way to get information right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as we see that, at the same time, Facebook might not be the right tool for a study that some clinical studies, they're recruiting from a patient already scheduled procedure. So in some of those studies, like even A the patient is kind of scheduled. The doctor says AF ablation is guideline therapy, we're scheduled for it. We have a new catheter. Here are the benefits would you like to do it. I don't know if that would be a right study. But in these patients that are really hard to find sometimes. To do it.
0: Yeah. I wonder what the, the new way of doing this would be because people aren't on Facebook the way that they were before. I wonder what the new way to do this would be.
1: Luckily, they say a lot of the older Fair. Maybe it's still good. But I, I have heard um, some teams have flirted with the idea of TikTok and kind of having a little bit of this ad. There's a really short reel or TikTok about, about the study, or Instagram's been used. Twitter to some extent, but again, I said earlier, I think Twitter is something physicians really find, they find it, they find helpful negative information. It could be a Twitter page, but it's not very patient centric. But I, I agree, I think there's, there's something out there that's more. There's new technology, new platforms. that have we haven't quite figured it out the best way. But I do know your, your, your team is working on bringing.
0: Yeah. Well, we want to be a place that patients are when they're learning about clinical trials and then in doing so be the best place to connect those patients with the trial teams that are, that are actively trying to meet them as well. Well, Brian, hey, I've, I've so enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'm going to give you the, the kind of traditional closing question here, which is if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and change anything about how clinical research is done today, what would you change?
1: I think um, <laughs> selfishly responsive. I have two answers for this.
0: But yeah, please. From a
1: sponsor point of view, I think site startup it can be a very painful process. Every, um, every sponsor uses essentially the same clinical file agreement, very similar language. Every site, we get hung up on three sections subject indemnification, uh, maybe sometimes even publication policy or uh, you know, subject injury. Uh, but we always get through it, but it could take months. So the budgeting, the clinical file agreement process, I think they could be streamlined a lot get away from that you know, six month three to six month startup time so that's a pain point for sponsors particularly it seems like there's you really you could really go faster by just you know sitting down at a table and participating in, in no time so that that's kind of my uh my sponsor i think the next the next thing if i could change something magic one, it's enrollment enrollment it's, it's really tough to stay on a uh, reasonable enrollment I want to study everybody's putting all of their minds from the Thoughts on trying to, how do we fix enrollment? And I think this discussion today is really similar to a lot of that. Make it easier for patients to understand a trial, uh, get into a trial, we make the trial easier for the patients and the research teams, and people start being more productive. But I think everything starts coming along the way better. It affects enrollment, retention. And then, even if you're doing this right and really thinking about the patient and advertising and getting the word out the right way, I think we increase diversity in the trial. And getting this filed out for more people. There's my magic wand. I don't know if it's too ambitious, but I'd love
0: to tackle those two I love those two things. I mean, at the end of the day, they all come down to time, right? Two really important problems that are uh, routinely bottlenecks uh, for researchers and for, uh, for patients. Uh, well, Brian, hey, again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on, have this conversation. I've so enjoyed it. Uh, talking about sites and patient centricity and the future of, uh, of this industry. Thank you for tuning in. If you haven't already, please follow Power on LinkedIn, sign up for our live events and engage with us in the conversation. We hope to have you join us next time on Power to the Patients. Take care.